0: Inside 20, for those who desire to hunt close, brought to you by Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia, Big Jim's Bow Company, Gunshy Archery, Vantage Point Archery, Custom Kings Traditional Archery, and Triple T Strings. Inside 20 is a separate entity from our sponsors. The information shared from each podcast are the beliefs of the Inside 20 associates and the guests participating. Tonight we have a very special guest that we've been waiting to talk to. He is a true artisan of his craft. Very talented when it comes to, to making pottery. Flintnap. I'd like to introduce Tony Soares. Tony, thank you for coming on tonight.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, not a problem. So, yeah, I know we talked earlier, man. I have been um, been trying my hand at flint napping, and it is, is very tough. <laughs> Usually, I get them really small before I I thin them down, and that's that's been my issue so far. So, my hats off to you because I've seen some of the points you make.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, there,
0: there's there. It's a lot of fun. It can be very addictive.
1: Sitting there chipping, the whole day can go by really quick.
0: Yeah, it can, and then you can you can still end up with a a broken point. Yep. 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 So a break bucket. Yeah, a big bucket. I got a big bucket of uh of shards underneath me right now. So yeah, I definitely get it. Um, bloody fingers and all of the above, but it is uh, it is rewarding. I've made some very very crude. I wouldn't even call them points, but they're they're triangles. Right now, I'm I'm proud of them.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a start. You got to start somewhere. I did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, how long does it take you to to start and finish one of more intricate points?
1: Oh gosh, um, if you if you really get into a, a you know, you collecting a piece of rock, and some of the rock needs to be heat treated and then chipped out, um, it, it could take probably five days, maybe, but uh, but when I get to just chipping a point on a piece of stone, eh, if I'm making a falcon point, it could be at least three to four hours. But a lot of times I'll make the bioface face and I'll relax for a while. Then I'll come back and set up the the platform for fluting, and then uh, flute one side, and then take a break. And then if I set up the second side and somebody calls me, then I I uh, I try not to to flute it for at least an hour or two because i for some reason i think when a phone call comes in it jinxes me and uh i break the point almost every time after that so i don't know definitely got to be in the mood and the spirit to, to to make a fulsome point
0: so what material are you going out and collecting the material yourself um and heat treating everything from start to finish is that how it works
1: um, if some, some materials, if it doesn't need heat treating, I won't heat treat it. Um, and I can get away with some pretty tough stuff, but, um, yeah, it, uh, and I don't collect all my material. There, there's so much stuff out there that I see other people have. I said, I got to try that. Now I'm just shooting for really pretty stuff. And that, that, you know, cause my, I try to raise my, my points prices up pretty high and uh, and I'm, make sure that the ones that i sell for expensive are usually top-notch the flutes terminate just before the tip in a little hinge flake and uh you know wide wide channel flutes and then they're two three millimeters thick not once they get four millimeters and they're a little bit too thick and uh, so you're you're looking at like a quarter and a penny put together something like that a lot of times the Time. there's there's a few that are that thin from the olden days and uh not many over four millimeters thick though it's, they made them unbelievably 10,000 years ago they were banging these things out and they nobody really knows how they were doing it
2: now, somebody like me tony who is not blessed with the ability to be able to nap a a fulsome pointed head how how could oh. they go about buying one from you. Do you have a website that you sell these on, or how how does that work?
1: Um, I'm probably in the process of getting my
0: biggest school would
1: you agree with that yeah thin without breaking them and then
0: right a lot of in a lot of falton points aren't very big
1: anyways they're you know like they're maxing out at three inches most of them but so there's like one or two that are four inches long but they're you know paper thin they're just unbelievable from the old ones so i try to stay within that dynamic of you will, and uh and the, and the and people are like, "Why are you charge so much?" And it's like, "Well, I don't have to sell them. I'll keep them for my kids to sell someday, or let them hang them on the wall." Or, but uh, you know, if I'm going to sell a nice piece of art, and I sell, like it's a diamond to me, so
0: absolutely, that's like, yeah, if
1: big, if a big enough piece of diamond, I'd try to flute that thing into a fulsome point.
0: <laughs> you might be sitting there <laughs> chipping for a while before you get a flake, but so I guess a fulsome point would that, um, with that be like a spearhead that wouldn't be a, a like a traditional arrowhead it would more be for yeah a spear. It,
1: yeah it was a, an atlatl dart point there's yeah almost 100 percent sure because they were uh after clovis clovis you know some they think were either thrusting spears or uh atlatl darts and then that younger Dryas happened or whatever they think there was a comet that hit over the great lakes and singed all the for- forest down and then everything went quiet for a little while. Then the Folsom culture started up with their thin fluted points, so uh, probably a much faster dart, uh, longer distance throwing. So and they were mostly after those bison and the big bison. They killed other things like rabbits and deer and everything else, but they only really like the big bison for some reason.
0: not amazing? Must have been an adrenaline rush. There's actually um. There's actually a guy on Facebook recently mm-hmm. killed a, a nice bison with a with an atlatl, you know. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was really impressive. Yeah. I, I can't I can't wait to hear that story.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's great science. I mean, what 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 goes into it? Even
0: even uh, you know,
1: even if you're shooting it with non traditional means, but the, having the the stone point as the projectile just to see how it penetrates and you know, because those, those old bison, they're thick-skinned and they're tough and, uh, you know, that's
0: right. what happens. Right. I imagine the fur alone would be a challenge to at least get to the skin, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite material to work with? If you have, like, uh, if you could have your, you know, pick of the litter. I know you said you wanted, you know, pretty over, you know, just something out there that you can get easily. So what would be your, your yeah. go-to material?
1: Uh, gosh, I, don't I like I kind of like the jaspers and and some types of agates, but I collect this jasper a few hours from me, and it's a red jasper, and some of it's gold, and uh, I don't know. I, I kind of like that stuff really well, but it can be full of little bits of junk here and there. But sometimes you get a real clean piece, and it it's it's like butter when you chip it
0: yeah that was gonna be my next question like do you grab just all the jasper you can get or are you very selective with what you haul back to the house yeah
1: very selective now because you I've got buckets of rock that some of it's kind of nappable and uh, so now it's you, know, you might spend a whole day picking up a bucket of rocks uh, you know that that are most likely going to be nappable and you'll get into some of them there'll be a patchture hidden in there or uh, big big they call it cement in the middle of it somewhere, a big chunk of something in there or crystal pockets. But, uh, yeah, you gotta be real selective. And now here, uh, where I live in Joshua trees, like they traveled a long way to get their rock and same like all the Folsom cultures in the, in the, the high plains. Uh, some of that stone that they were getting was six, I think it was like 600 kilometers, uh, away. Um, so they'd go down into Texas and pick up either Alibate or some of that Edward Plateau chert, and they haul it all the way up into. I think uh, they found a camp in Wyoming that was like 99% of the stone was Edward Plateau chert on the on the site. So that's a long way to haul off, dodge tornadoes, whatever you gotta do, hunt and you know, yeah. fight off yeah. beasts that are out there. Ten thousand years ago, what? Why were they hauling that rock? Or just because it was nice to chip? I don't know. Yeah. Who makes the Who makes the map of uh, where to go and get it? That's pretty impressive
0: too. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, you wonder how long they were using that quarry too.
1: People they knew where all the good stuff was. They were, uh, you know, before Folsom, but they they,
0: uh,
1: they they found all the best quarry sites for all the high quality cherts and flints.
0: So around here, we're we're in West Georgia area, and we found probably ten quartz points. And man, they're mm-hmm. they're really crude points. I mean, but you have to respect what they put into it because that quartz, man. I mean, if if you've ever been around quartz, you know it's like brittle, yep. fragile. I mean, so even though mm-hmm. they're, I mean, they're not the prettiest points to find. I mean, I like them. I love finding a point, but. Um, yeah. you, you really have to respect what goes into it. Just because, you know, I assume that's that was the cream of the crop around, you know, at least around here. When you didn't, when you didn't have flint or chert or whatever else, we have found some that were. I'm assuming it's it's flint or chert. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I've but seen yeah. the
1: court in Georgia out there. A friend of mine went to it and showed me some pictures of it. And it it's a uh, there's some quartz out here that's nappable. Most of it's not, but there's some really sugary or crystallized stuff that is chippable but, um, and the early people out here, the Pinot man, loved quartz for some reason, they loved quartz and this other tough uh, felsite stuff, it's just as tough as cuss, it's like a quartzite but it's fine green but this doesn't like the chip very easy and they love that stuff and it's just hideous to map but that's what they had that's what they used
0: yeah, you'd have to have a pretty solid hammerstone if you were gonna nap that stuff, you know.
1: Yep, yep.
0: You don't, you don't hunt much, is that right? No, uh, as a kid I did, but it was we we ran around with bows and arrows, but
1: also with uh, our twelve gauge on our beach cruisers or bicycles. But in in farmland duck hunting, and uh, nowadays they'd you know probably shoot you off your bicycle. But back in the day, we could roll down the streets and. There was nobody around. It was kind of fun, but I, I do I do shoot a lot with my bows and arrows. But I don't
0: I don't go out big game hunting, deer hunting, none of that stuff.
1: But I, I was been thinking about getting
0: my hunting license again. Yeah, that'd be really cool to uh, harvest something with with the stuff you've made. Yeah, yeah. In California, you can't hunt with
1: stone points, so so it's like you know. Oh dang it! Yeah, I didn't know
0: that. That's a that's something good to know. Mm-hmm. Would you say a, a Folsom Point's your favorite point to make?
1: Yeah, ever since I was a kid, that's the only point that I ever really liked, and uh, I have a few attempts that I did probably when I was about, must have been about eight, seven, eight, or nine years old, and I found one raking my mom's yard years ago uh, that I had thrown off to the side. It was like a little tiny fluted point, and uh, and then I I just chipped arrowheads of all sorts until I met some nappers when I was about 19 or must've been 19 or 20. That's when I first met other nappers at a napping in Wrightwood, California. And, uh, one guy had a metal fluting jig and he showed me how how to, uh, flute, a falsum on that. His name was Lee Corey. And, uh, uh, then I was really hooked on fluting. So I fluted everything I got my hands on. Um, and, uh, Then I progressed into, you know, non-metal tools, so it'd be what you call, like, primitive or uh, abo technique stuff, you know, where there was, you know, indirect percussion or um, pressure jigs without any kind of metal stuff, so, and I did that for a long time, and I'm about to start making some of my old, they call it the soar's jig, uh, and try to sell a few of those soon, but just a lot of work goes into them, so I haven't finished. I got six of them on the burner, almost ready to go, but gotta finish them up. Cool stuff.
0: So I wanted to, to ask you one more question before I let before I let Matt Matt talk for a second. Did you make a point for Clay Newcomb? Yeah, I made him uh, six, seven
1: points. I think he got uh, six six points uh, that he's gonna hunt with, and he he did shoot the bear with one of them.
0: Yeah, that's what and, I was uh, that's what I was trying to get to. That that yeah. must have been rewarding for not only him but you see your your points be used, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, bears, you know, big big medicine. So I like uh um you know, somebody else to do it. I don't need have the need to shoot one, but uh you know, for another hunter to use one of my points to go out and do it and and another person's arrows. It was like a whole team. Those guys were really great to work with uh and go see the the Folsom site and all that stuff out there in New Mexico it was um pretty cool I always wanted to go to Folsom New Mexico just to go check it out so I got a, a free ride out there flight and drive and the whole nine yards
0: wow that's awesome that's awesome you grab you some material while you're out there um no,
1: no uh I, most of the stuff in that area was probably brought in um a lot of uh,
0: say may find it kind of weird you them back rocks but you know i'm sure it's been done before
1: yeah yeah i labeled everything in, the, in, in my <laughs> luggage so they wouldn't panic what it was <laughs>
0: right. right well that's cool man yeah so one thing i wanted to, to to mention i'm sure you've heard of this before i guess it's the some of the latest um native americans that i guess we had in the the, the americas um, mm-hmm used glass insulators i guess there was electricity while there were um native americans still napping and stuff so people have found yeah have you heard anything yeah. about that because i just read an article on it probably a, a couple of months ago and i thought it was really fascinating
1: i believe ishi chipped a few points out of the, some glass insulators and he was one of the last y'all he's up there he's like the last guy that walked They could shoot that red light out. That was the the red glass. It was red glass. So they they, they like that. And I've heard of one or two points being found made out
0: of that red glass. No kidding. That's that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, one
1: of my my uncles told me so. It was it a was step uncle, but whether it was BS or not. But I mean, like, wow, that's cool. where'd you come up with that? He's like, it happened. It happened. So, and I am <laughs> actually cool. finding a piece of red glass that was from a train caboose somewhere uh, down by the Salton Sea. When, uh, when I was a youngster, it was a big broken piece of a back end of a light. I don't know. What, uh, I have it somewhere tucked in one of my bo- boxes of rocks that I've never napped it. I always thought that'll make a cool point someday, and it's buried.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's definitely that's definitely cool. Talk about two worlds colliding, you know. That's um, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Um, so I I picked up a bottle while we were down um, pig hunting in South Georgia, and I brought it back. And I actually found that to be the easiest thing for me to nap. Now, like I said, my points aren't good by any stretch of the matter, but it was actually the easiest thing for me to nap. So I can see how they yeah. would they would prize that.
1: Yep, old Milwaukee points, the bottom of them
0: brown beer bottles. Those are the
1: prettiest ones there are.
0: Yeah, it was a brown one, actually. <laughs> matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Just got to do a
1: lot of, you know, when you're starting out your, your biface, shear that edge. If you shear that edge off and get you a nice little run of little flake, then you can come back and just pressure flake the other
0: side off. And it, yeah, it, it so, works so I didn't realize how important abrading the edge of. Um, yeah. Edge of the stone was until someone showed me what a braiding was, and I was like, okay, wow, this this does help because I was crumbling a lot of the edges and um, yeah. it was just turning to dust. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So so there is a there is a technique there for sure, um, but it's fun. I still haven't figured out the the science to getting the the flakes to run the way you want to, and and I'm sure that that comes with a lot of broken stones. So
1: you up a lot of inward pressure and then outward pressure at the last second the more you can push to the center of the mass of the stone the better off your flake is going to run you know it's going to run a bit further and then if you depend on if you're starting at the tip of the point or if you're starting at the back end of the point kind of depends on how your flakes are going to run also
0: right yeah it's um you know not to have that big turtle back in the middle of the point when you're kind of getting it small is it's so tough man i mean anybody that hasn't tried it i would definitely <laughs> urge you to try it because it's it's really fun i mean it, you can you can waste away an hour two hours just sitting being on a rock you know before you even know it
1: well that's that's why they invented fluting that we could flute that turtle back off
0: yes i you know i i don't even know <laughs> i'm gonna have to do some more research uh, i'm getting with the guy here in a in about a month and we're going to do some napping together so maybe i'll get him to show me all about that
2: it's fun
0: yes sir it is
2: tony history to me as a young boy has always just been so fascinating and maybe that's why i've been so drawn to traditional bow hunting as a hobby of mine now and i know back in history you had to have some type of way to collect water and through some research when we came across your pages we saw some amazing pottery that you hand make so we would love to hear about just how you do that and some of the methods that you use to make that pottery yeah um
1: well my grandmother got me into making pots as a kid that was probably like i mean i remember probably being like five or six years old, just playing with clay and then got into like little pinch pots. And then I got into pots, you know, little cylinder type pots, just making them a flat bottom off of a table um, that were maybe, I don't know, eight inches tall. And I thought, wow, it's huge. And then um, my great aunt, her sister, who I'm going to go see this weekend in Albuquerque, she's 95 or pushing 95, but she said, come out and see me soon. So, I'm going to go see her. But uh, she was the one that kind of got me into arrowhead stuff. But back to grandma making pots. Um, uh, she taught me how to fire with uh, sawdust and charcoal. So, I started kind of creeping up on pots. And then growing up in the desert, uh, there's pot shards laying all over the place. Or at least there was as a, as a youngster. You, you could, there were just everywhere, there's camps all over the place. And you, you'll still see them coming out of the sand once in a while. Um, there's a lot more traffic here now, so stuff just kind of disappears. But um, um, the museums have some big pots, and there's a, a family that lived out here called the Campbells. They collected all the old pots they could find in all the caves in the it was the Joshua Tree National Park. I think it was before it was a park um before it was a monument or anything like that but anyway they luckily they collected them all and they have them in a big storage compound and when i got to see those things i was just floored uh how big the pots are they look like balloons um with small necks most of them have small necks some of them have wider mouths but uh, a lot of more storage pots for food and uh and what they what else they could stuff in a pot but uh um They're paper thin, hardly any temper in the wall. Some of them do coarse temper, like quartz or sand, and that just intrigued me to to look at the broken shard and see what the 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 wall of the pot is made out of, what, what particles are in there. And I don't know, one of them spectrum people is like, wow, I gotta I gotta know how this is done. So I, where's the clay, Grandma? Where would they get the clay? We're getting it, Aaron Brothers. You know, or, or or any of the other stores that were um, Laguna Clay Company. That so I went out and started finding after a rain here and there, I could find some muddy spots, and most of that had clay. I started to recognize and uh, find my own clay sources, and then practice building pots. And then I was like, how did they make a round bottom pot when everything we build off of is flat, a flat surface? And, so I saw a picture of this Tona Odom lady, which uh, it was—they uh, were Papago.
2: those that have not seen your work and how amazing uh, just the the art that you produce uh, I've actually run across where I looked like you had actually sent some of your work to a museum right is that correct and how how often has that happened and what different types of work have you sent is it pottery and all the above
1: yeah stuff I can't remember everything that but I, I got a lot of stuff together for them. I'm working on a, a little museum and the California right now, the Hamilton Museum and I'm making some arrows and arrowheads and different things for them uh, but yeah, there's a few other let's see the Palm Springs Museum, Agri Coliente Cultural Museum in Palm Springs. Um, that's a, a big new museum that's coming up pretty soon and I've made stuff for their little museum and, uh, um, they've always, uh, had me at their events to, you know, help fundraise for this big museum. So I'm excited. It might be opening in October or November of this year, but it just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. Like I've been helping out for 30 years on this thing. I was like, man, I hope I get to see it. (laughs) So it's going to happen here. But, um, yeah, if you want to look at my, my Instagram at Tony Soar's Pottery or on my YouTube channel, Tony Soar's Native Clays, I actually did an hour and
2: 18-minute pottery
1: movie on
2: Tony Sores Native Clays. It's fascinating. I don't know about you, Tim, but I have never had the opportunity to speak to somebody that has been able to submit things that they have handmade to a museum or been asked to do that.
0: No, that's yeah. really cool. That's that's really cool, and that must make you really proud. A museum wants your stuff because you're following traditional ways that closely. I mean, that's that's cool.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's um, it, it makes me feel pretty good. And then my kids, you know, I've got two young daughters, and then I take them out to the museum, and and they, I was like, look, babe, I babes, I built this stuff for this museum. They're like, oh wow, that's cool, dad. And you know, they they're excited about it, I guess. once in a while, but, uh, you know, it's not their passion, which I'm not forcing it upon anybody, but anybody that wants to learn, especially on the reservations, I really try to push, you know, know, hang on to this because I'm not going to be here forever. So you guys, somebody's got to pick this back up.
2: change. And I think as technology continues to advance, uh, I think that traditional ways of hunting or gathering or any type of handmade items like this are going to continue to be few and far between as to who those people are, are still practicing that way. And I think you're right. I think it's so important to reserve that and continue to share with others that have no clue that they maybe they weren't as uh, lucky to be exposed to friends or people in their circle or family. Uh, I've never seen it before. They've, they've maybe only seen it on videos for something that has been you know produced by somebody like you, or you know, maybe they've run across a podcast and, and that's why we're super passionate about it, especially traditional bow hunting is just continue to reserve that and uh, allow other people to be exposed to it because we were fortunate enough to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah. Bow hunting is a blast. I mean, you know, I'll I'll run around out here around the property and uh, set up little targets and my, my girls will do it too. Or we'll use the atlatl and throw the atlatl. And that's a whole other fun thing to learn. And, uh, oh, there's a coyote right here. And one of these little coyotes took my dog a couple of weeks ago and I never came back. So, oh, wow. uh, I keep with the coyotes, but I'm going to let this one keep walking. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyways uh um but yeah it, bow hunting is uh is um you know it's a great sport and it and I think it's way you know nicer to shoot with a bow and arrow than a rifle i mean a rifle anybody can pick up a rifle and and shoot something at you know five hundred yards out or whatever with a scope on it, but can you shoot with a bow and arrow and uh give that animal a little bit more of a chance that's that's uh the trick and then if you want to get even more chancy pick up an atlatl and try it like the oldest you know, cultures in the americas were doing and and the whole world i mean everybody used the atlatl
0: you know when i um when i think about uh the stone points and you know uh, making your own shafts using sinew for the string and you know working out your own bow i really think that 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 is the the real traditional bow hunting i mean because that's that's where it all stemmed from um and um all this we're talking about tonight this is real you know it's american history i mean this is the the very start of american history and i do think it is very important to pass this down um and not let it be forgotten you know and it's good that that you carry that on and that we're talking about it tonight i I believe
1: yeah there's uh Yeah. And there's so many types of bows and things out there. Like, you know, you know, you got your long bows and your fiberglass bows and compounds we'll we'll keep out of the, of the realm of that stuff. But, uh, your sinew back bows. And I, I really like sinew back bows and I prefer shorter bows, um, like 45 inches and shorter down to 36 inches. But, uh, uh, you know, you, you got to have a feel for that. It's more of a, it's not like you're really aiming, but you have to have, know where, it's like a quick draw from the hip. That's kind of a, that kind of shooting with the shorter bows or longer bows, you can anchor it to your cheekbone and and draw it. And uh, I had a friend who made long bows. Uh, his name is Frank Garski, who's a stone sculptor. And if you look on my Instagram page, he is one of the only guys I've ever met that tried to shoot an arrow over the pyramid, the Great Pyramid in Giza, when he was there, I want to say he was there in the 40s in the army. And then he hiked up to the top of one of the Great Pyramids and shot an arrow into his quiver at the bottom of the pyramid. And he's got a picture of himself on the top of the Great Pyramid with a Egyptian guy in his quiver and bow up there, which is pretty amazing. he taught me how to anchor and all that stuff on my cheekbone.
0: That's um, pretty epic right there, honestly
1: yeah you know, guy the guy was amazing he shot a hundred and ten pound uh bow He was a, a bear hunter, a hunting guide in I think Colorado and Wyoming and told me all about feathers like you want to use this type of turkey feather from down low uh or, or up high depending on what altitude you were shooting at because their feathers were thicker or thinner. I was like, oh my gosh, he's like a scientist of of archery and I had no idea that's probably like sixty. 15 or 16 when i met him and he was just like just got into uh, all the ins and outs of bow making and stuff so he taught me a lot a lot about that which you know i pass it on I, i'm not like i'm not a person who's out here selling bows every day i'll make one once in a while jason momoa is a friend of mine he's got some of my bows and uh he, he collects a lot of my folsom points he he loves the folsom points. Um, so I, I have, uh, I have some collectors out there and a, a whole bunch of other people on com pick up my stuff here and there. So, and, uh, and I appreciate it cause that's, that's how I survive. I mean, I'm kind of like a primitive man still surviving in the old ways, even though I've done some college stuff and cut hair for 30 years and, uh, i almost joined the military in 1988, but i didn't but i do kind of regret not going in just to be part of the warriors club but all the guys that i talked to say thank god you didn't
2: so i don't know but anyways fascinating your background and just how you live your life it truly is and i think that uh you're one of few that do that talk about that 36 inch bow that you made and i know you've got a, a youtube video about that but like where that originated from like where that would be used back in the old times and you know the benefits behind that you've, you've hit on that briefly yeah so um well the one that i recently had i'll get to in
1: just a second so i i've made the sinew back bows out of juniper and uh, uh what else some ash and they work really well there was two different two or three different groups out here there's actually a bunch of different groups out here uh like the Kuiya they and the mojave they traditionally use really long bows like four to five six foot uh mostly desert willow or the uh, and uh mountain ash bows and they're for long distance uh casting you know because it's wide open desert for the most part out here and you had the chimoevi people that came in a little bit later and they were more traditionally with short bows because they're from the north uh um from what i've what i've heard send you back they use sheep horn bows so sheep horns once you cut one off of one horn and one off the other uh you get like a 36 maybe a maybe a 40 inch bow and uh so they're more of a composite bow and uh they shoot really well very very tough but california got a lot of laws about sheep horns so i don't have one but um so I've made a bunch of sinewback bows, and, and I love shooting those, but I wanted a bow that I could leave strung. And I had uh, a fellow at uh, uh, Riverbend Longbows, and um, he made me, I asked him, can you make me a fiberglass bow that's 36 inches long? And uh, so this one's made out of walnut fiberglass and some deer antler tips on it. And uh, I really like it. It shoots very similar to my sinewback bows. And, but I can leave it strung in the house or, um, you know, as long as it's not in the heat, I don't have to worry about it string following and, and getting weaker. Uh, so that's what I wanted to have. And and then I can carry it in my quiver with me and, and, you know, walk around the neighborhood. My wife and everybody says, God, it looks like a toy bow. It looks like a kid bow because it's barely, it's not even an inch wide, maybe maybe an inch wide, three quarters of an inch, maybe an inch wide and only 36 inches long and a 50-pound draw at 20 inches, which I'm trying to get a 24-inch draw at 50 pounds on my next one that he makes for me. I don't know anything about fiberglass you know, bow making, but uh, wouldn't mind learning it someday. It, it's, uh, it's just a little bit of lamination, but you got to have some skill for it, that's for sure.
2: Wow. That's amazing. It really is. It's, uh, fascinating just the, uh, the way that a shape of a bow and what it's made out of and how that will impact, you know, just the integrity of it and what you can do with it and the, uh, the ability for it to shoot accurately. Uh, and then a lot of that, uh, obviously majority of it relies on the individual that is utilizing it to, to make it perform to its full potential. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, it's 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 a fun bow.
1: I got it in my hands in my truck right now. It's like I could almost I could hold it out the window and shoot. <laughs> you know, there's no no. I mean that's and that's why a lot of the horse people on the plains they use a lot of short bows because they're very maneuverable and uh, uh, you know quick draw. And then a lot of those guys were shooting buffalo uh, from like five feet away, right, riding right next to it on their horse and shooting right down through the heart and the thing one of them fellas said they could shoot through a cow buffalo and kill the calf on the other side that's how strong
0: some of their bows were i don't know if anybody's ever tried it but inside 20 is brought to you by traditional bow hunters of georgia head on over to TradBowGA.com for more information and by big jim bow company the place for custom bows handmade leather goods and much more to meet your traditional archery needs Check them out at BigJimBowCompany.com Gunshy Archery, the perfect custom made quiver for both two and three blade broadheads. Check them out at gunshyarchery.com. VPA Broadheads, precision machined one piece broadheads, two and three blade mode is available. Check them out at VPArchery.com. Custom King Archery, the best price on the best traditional archery product since 1972. Check them out at CustomKingArchery.com. Triple T Strings created champion level Flemish and endless strings for hunters and target shooters using the best materials. Check them out at TTT Strings on Facebook. So Tony, I um, I watched that video you had on your YouTube channel and I want you to plug it again after we get done because I think people need to check it out because I didn't realize the power um, that that little bow could have I clicked on it you know it was interesting 36 inch you know bow that's that's cool but man Mm -hmm. I mean you were you got what was that five or six arrows out in a matter of seconds I mean those they're really efficient and you know like you said riding on the back of a horse you would you'd probably need a handful of arrows you know Uh, a lot so they're really efficient bows and I was really surprised at how quick it was and uh, the accuracy that came out of it I mean you you piled them up into that target, so I would uh, I would definitely <laughs> well, suggest people check that out because it is very cool.
1: Yeah. Full disclosure, though, I did shoot three arrows, and then I t- to be able to see the arrows hit the target, I had a, put a few arrows sticking out because the arrows that I was shooting were going through the hay bale, but I shot into the pile of arrows twice. That you, so that way, you could see both arrows hit the pile, and that you could see the, you know, the other arrows rocking. Um, but uh, it was just a quick little video. So let me see see how this. Is. And I just got the bow, so I, frink frink frink, and then went over and filmed it. The arrows hitting, and it's it's fun that I did it in slow motion, so you could really see that they were actually hitting the target. Uh,
0: so what kind of arrows uh, were those? What um, these are they, the traditional arrows, kind of how you would you would make.
1: I make them. Uh, I there's so I use a lot of arrowweed or river. It's not river cane. It's called carizo cane, which is a very light pithy kind of, not even pithy. It's very light cane, um, and it breaks real easy. But that's what they use to, out here mostly. That and arrowweed. Arrowweed's kind of a hardwood. You can either find it dead and it's really hardwood, or you find it when the After, like, a summer rain and the plant soaks up a lot of water, you harvest it then, and it's a little pithier. And I I like it at that stage because the arrows are are a little bit lighter weight. But um, these particular arrows that I was shooting the other day are just the youth arrows um, dowels that I get from um, uh, an arrow-making company. But I I make my own arrows, so I order the dowels. And they're only one-fourth-inch wide they're 25 inches long and i put the little field points on and i put put the little feathers and little knocks on the back and uh they work really well i'm uh actually making some that are a little bit thicker and i'm going to test those out to see if i can still keep the speed and just have a little bit more punch to the to the arrow when it hits but uh they're fast and fun now. I don't know about taking down a bear with one, but it definitely would work if you used the small point. You know, you don't need a big old broadhead. Uh, but you'd have to check with your local state laws because everybody's different. But back in the day out here, they used these little needle tip stone points, maybe quarter an inch of an inch wide to a half inch wide, and some of them were about an inch long. Of them were just little triangles about the size of your pinky nail, and they, you know, took down bighorn sheep with them, probably bear and and antelope. There used to be a lot of antelope out here, but uh, that was, uh, I think, fast and, and deep penetration of uh, the the animal is what they wanted back in the day.
0: You know, when uh, when when I see people on Facebook, um, you know, say that they found a an arrowhead. Um, mm-hmm. even I do it. I'm not, I'm not calling anyone out, but even I, I do it. Usually the ones we find, they're bigger, maybe an inch, two inches long. Um, you know, pretty wide. <laughs> Those aren't their traditional arrowheads. I mean, what would that be used for? Like an atlatl or maybe even some kind of spear? Probably, probably an atlatl.
1: Um, the, uh, I would think cause I, I asked uh, well, one of my friends, he was using some pretty good size arrowheads. deer is more modern stuff but his, his his was a traditional made bow 50 pound draw and he he um, killed a lot of deer he had 15 kids that he had to feed and he lived in Arizona he's passed away since but uh he was an amazing guy and uh, I asked him one day I said how far does that arrowhead penetrate because I never you know really shot a big animal with a with a, an arrow before it was a stone point and he said Most of the time, they traverse all the way through, unless it hits a a bone. But he said he would have to go find his arrow on the other side of the elk. Usually, it would just keep on going. And I was like, holy cow. Um, So, they worked. I mean, they they did use some bigger points back in the day. But I think uh, they did use a lot of little points. It seemed like later on, they started using smaller and smaller points. Maybe oh, yeah. they
0: just got maybe they just got better at napping them, they could get them smaller without, <laughs> without them being thick like <laughs> like I do, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean we shoot tanks nowadays, I mean with a depleted uranium rod that's only like an inch or inch and a half uh wide and it it sails clean through a tank, you know uh in one side and out the other, so uh, and and then the bows out here they weren't that powerful, I mean a lot of the the Four foot to six foot willow, desert willow sticks that I've gathered, made a bow out of. You might get a forty pound draw out of it if you're lucky. Uh, maybe they did some fire hardening. Maybe they did some string backing. Uh, but most of the old ones that you see, they don't have any of that stuff on them. But uh, um, so they were shooting fairly weak bows, lightweight arrows, and and still getting a good you know kill ratio with those. And wood points. They used a lot of wood points out here. I've seen. Uh, I I can't talk about it yet, but it, it's going to be. But there was a whole bunch of wood points, and if you go to the Malkit Museum on the Morongo Indian Reservation here in Southern California, they have a quiver with like thirty or forty arrows that they found, and they're made of corozo cane, and a few are made of arrowweed, and they have desert, we uh, call desert greasewood. Um, wood points with they're just horrible looking points they got all these they look like fishing spears they got all kinds of jagged uh like three-sided points four-sided points and uh they just look kind of yeah i wouldn't want to get hit by one because there's no way you're getting it pulled out And they're about probably about four or five six inches long hard hard desert wood
0: Oh, never nice. heard i've and never heard of wood points before that's that that's fascinating um i guess you do what you got to do you know
1: Yep, that's it yeah that was it. the hardest material around here and that's what they used the desert hardwood and there, a lot of australians they they didn't nap that much but they used a lot of hardwood points hmm. for their arrows.
0: that's very interesting
1: Yep, well there's a will, there's a way. They're, you're gonna survive man that's gonna survive one way or another. I think uh and the only the trickiest ones survive, I guess.
2: That the innovative what, ones, right?
1: Yeah, the innovative ones back in the day that was, you know that was that was the way to do it.
2: For somebody that might be new to trying to nap ahead what is something that you maybe have struggled with or started struggling with when you began napping Uh, a word of advice that you would pass along something that you feel is super important
1: um well i would just say make sure you're you know protecting yourself your eyes 100 percent of the time if you're around flint napping wear some you know clear goggles or, or uh you know, some, something to protect your eyes, um, and your lungs, don't chip indoors if you, if you can, if you do have a fan and, and the, the air blowing out, uh, cause you will fill your lungs full of glass, silica, and it's not good for you. You will die sooner or later from it. But, um, on chipping, um, just like, if you're going to use antler, shear your edge, like just kind of take the antler and, and take it along the edge of your flake that you're going to, Snap into an arrowhead, you know, roll that edge and get yourself a little, uh, like a beveled edge on there, and then start your flaking. You can do a little bit of grinding if you're using copper. Definitely do some grinding because it's a harder material. It's going to crush your platforms, so you want to grind it up, and then uh, separate your flakes a little bit. A lot, of, a lot of folks I know, they their uh, their flakes are so close together. Um it, it crushes the edge too. So if you separate them just a little bit more, sometimes you'll get a nicer flake and it'll run a little bit further. Um I think that yeah, you know, I mean that's all I can without sitting there showing you that's it's really hard for me to so, explain. So
0: t- Tony, that was uh mm-hmm. that was really good advice because I have been not wearing goggles and I'm inside in my basement. Um uh, hit me yeah. rocks so i will uh, I will take this project outside for sure um, yeah I didn't know about the flakes I didn't know that separating you know separating your flakes would would cause or not separating your flakes would cause uh, it to crumble that is very good information i I did not know that
1: yeah, just a little bit you want it so you're gonna have their flake is gonna have its little you know, where it pushes off from it's gonna leave a little concavity and you wanna go over to where the next ridge is and then just a tiny bit over from that you'll you'll have a the center of the delta from for your next point. You can even knock off the the little I don't even know the terminology, I just know how to chip. But um you know, you just move over a little bit and you'll you'll get better flakes and they'll look a little nicer and, and uh, for some sometimes if you get too far over then they're going to be harder to push off so i think for a beginner napper start at the tip end of the triangle and and flake kind of towards the tip and then go work your way back to the to the wide end of the point to the back end of the point
0: so much that goes into napping these heads um it's it is really an, an art, and you are an artisan, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's tough, but yeah, I th- thank you for your uh, for sharing your wisdom with me right there. I'm gonna take this project yeah. outside,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. My one of my good one of our we lost a big time napper, uh, was the last uh, last year, year and a half ago, Jim Hopper. He was super good napper, and he had a lung full of silica, but uh, uh and I think a lot of the remember the, the gray ghost, they called him. Reinhardt, I think he had silicosis from napping. Um, and a few other uh, few other big nappers end up having silicosis, I think. I don't know if they died from it, but that's when I heard. But so definitely don't chip indoors. If you do, wear a mask, you know. And it's kind of cumbersome, it's, and a lot of people laugh at you, but, hey, you'll save your lungs later on in life. You only know, yeah, get two of them. And especially for the youngsters when you're starting up start those good habits young because uh, uh it's it's you know it's not good <laughs> to breed. it make it makes the asbestos look like cotton candy you know it's a, it's some real stuff there
2: <clears throat> well I can say that tonight I have learned more from you uh, than I think I have uh, in a lot of other episodes that we have uh, We have talked to to different guests and just from the standpoint of the history that you're able to share uh, this lost art that is often not practiced by many anymore. And just the importance of understanding like where it all came from and how and how crucial it is for us to preserve that going forward. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to spend with us uh, and thank you for just the wisdom that you shared. Uh, It's priceless. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, Tony, if you don't mind, we're going to close real quick in a, a word of prayer. All right, Lord, we just come to you today, and I just thank you so much for this opportunity uh, for us just to have this podcast where we can just connect with so many different people from around uh, different parts of the world, Lord, and just uh, different walks of life, and and just being able to share the history of man and just all the different things that you've been able to, uh, to see, uh, see through and just been able to bless us and our time together. I just thank you for, Tony, I thank you for just his desire that you've put in his heart to continue this uh, amazing way of life. I ask that you continue to give him opportunity and people to teach and allow those individuals to come in with eyes open and willingness to learn and then the desire to go and share that and spread that with other people. Uh, We just thank you so much for him and his family, continue to guide him in his everyday life, continue to be with him professionally and personally, Lord, uh, continue to be with all the listeners out there. Just watch over them. Uh, thank you for each and one, every one of them that continues to support this podcast. I ask you continue to guide us as we try to produce more content and the individuals that we reach out to. We just thank you for them in advance. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.
0: Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Tony. Yep.